Morning, everybody. Good to see you. It is the first Sunday of Advent. That's exciting, right? Like that? Does that just make you happy a little bit? Maybe. <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> I actually rewatched a few scenes from <coughs> from the Charlie Brown movie. Um, have you seen it? And Charlie Brown sometimes he's like, I don't know why I like Christmas presents, but I just don't feel happy. I think that might resonate with some of you here today. <laughs> um, my name is Lisa Watson, and uh, I, I am a pastor here at Christ City Church. I also work for an organization called the Christian Community Development Association as their leadership and training director. I'm passionate about um, seeing people reconciled to God and to one another, and so I love journeying with people as they figure out where they are on, in their relationship with him and just journey, journey with them towards him. Um, so I have a few hopes for Advent this season, um, and, and as I was starting to prepare for this sermon, I, I thought, okay, like, what, what, how am I going to keep vigil? How will I help our family keep vigil? And so one morning, very unexpectedly to the rest of my family, I decided that we would we would all stop what we were doing and we would take some time and make a list of things we were going to do to make sure that we would have the Advent season that we wanted. And, and <laughs> it took a little bit of convincing, but we ended up with a fun, actually fun list, and it was a good experience for us. Um, so here's our list. It says, um, decorate the house. Um, white elephant, our kids, we have a white elephant exchange in our small group every year. Our kids really like that week. Um, have parties, go to Miami. You could see I didn't write that one. That one's in black. I told Elias he could put it there, but I told him it, it, that's not happening. Um, <laughs> uh, ice skating. Here's everyone that has been to our house since the sign went up. This is their favorite. Christmas sushi. I don't really know what Christmas sushi is, but maybe we're going to do that. Um, there, there are other things. Hot chocolate, make flan, make gifts for friends and neighbors. And, and I thought to do this this year especially because, because honestly, year after year, I get excited at the beginning of Advent because I know how significant it is. And then by the time Christmas comes, I'm like, where did Advent go? I was so intending to have a really meaningful season, but I just didn't put the intentionality to it to actually make that happen. Um, we're going to decorate our house. That's the first thing on the list. And, uh, and Miner, as Justin mentioned, is, is selling trees. This school is, is selling Christmas trees. So we're going to get a Christmas tree from Miner. And when we decorate the Christmas tree and we hang ornaments on that Christmas tree, we're going to hang prayers for the students of this church and for our community. Because that's what Advent is. It's about love and it's about presence. And it's about caring and protecting and hoping for things that maybe not yet, but someday will be. Advent is a season of anticipation where, where we look back and, and we look ahead. Last, last week in Justin's sermon, um, he mentioned this Hebrew word. Uh, it was hesed. And in Jesus, we see God's hesed. Loyal, faithful, committed love, proven in action and over time. 
In looking back on the birth of Christ in celebration, we look forward to the day when he returns and he, when he makes all things right. In this light, the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, perfectly represents the church's cry during the Advent season. I'm going to sing just, just a line for you so you can hear it again. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. <laughs> Thanks. And while Advent is certainly a time of celebration and anticipation of Christ's birth, it's more than that. It's only, it's only in the shadow of Advent that the miracle of Christmas can be fully understood and appreciated, and it's only in the light of Christmas that the Christian life makes any sense. And so we're keeping vigil during this Advent. That's our theme. But what does it mean to keep vigil? There's, there's a definition that I came across in modified, um, and it's the practice of staying awake for devotional purposes, especially on the eve of a religious festival. You know, when we're staying awake, that, that sort, of, um, sort of insinuates that other people are sleeping, um, staying awake. So when everybody else is asleep, keeping vigil is being awake especially for devotional purposes. The other definition is a purpose, a purposeful surveillance to guard or observe um, for prayer and anticipation. We, we do this, we guard prayer and anticipation. So when do we hold vigil? Well, sometimes it happens for some of us um, as we, we watch someone um, move from life to death. And the sanctity of, of that life um, we sort of guard and protect and watch over that transition as it happens. We hold a vigil. Uh, more commonly, I think, th at least in the media, um, we see vigils happen when there's been community violence. And uh, we make sacred, again, the space where tragedy stole innocence. We hold vigil in that geography. We guard the memory of whomever was lost. We hold vigil um, together as a global church once a year as we pray for the persecuted church. We stay awake to stand in solidarity for a time when our fellow brothers and sisters experience justice and they experience peace and they experience liberation from oppression because of their religious beliefs. We pray here during the day at three o'clock so that over there, while they're sleeping, they can know that we've got their back and we're holding vigil for them. Christ City Church is keeping vigil during Advent this year because of the example that the shepherds set for us so long ago. 
And uh, I'm going to focus on two verses this morning. And those two verses say, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. What scene flashes on the screen of your mind when you hear those words? For me, it's the Charlie Brown movie. <laughs> Little Linus, someone says, well, I don't know the meaning of Christmas. And Linus steps out onto the stage and he starts to recite this passage. And lo, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So that's the scene that flashes on the screen of my mind. But that's probably nothing at all like what it was like on the hill that night out in the fields. You know, before this time, there were 400 years of silence from God. The last time that God had spoken through a prophet was the prophet Malachi. 400 years of not hearing any special revelation from God through prophets or through anything. And so the shepherds are there in the dark. It was nighttime. They're out in the field somewhere near Bethlehem. And it was dark, I think, both physically and metaphorically. Not hearing anything from God for 400 years. That is some serious waiting. And that's some, that's some hard spiritual darkness, I think. So who were these shepherds? Well, <laughs> Basically, shepherds were on the bottom rung of the Palestinian social ladder. Um, ancient Jewish writings reflect the prejudice towards shepherds, referring to them in belittling terms. One passage describes them as incompetent, and another one says that no one should ever feel obligated if a shepherd falls into a ditch to rescue him. They were discarded by their society. Theologian Dr. Joachim Jeremias documents the fact that shepherds were deprived of all civil rights. They couldn't fulfill judicial offices. They couldn't even be admitted into courts as witnesses. He wrote, to buy wool, milk, or a goat from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. There was tremendous suspicion and marginalization of shepherds in that day. So they were socially outcast, economically disadvantaged. Geographically, they were pushed beyond the edges of access to resources and they were always on the move. Spiritually, they were neglected by the religious ruling leaders. And guess what? These are the people that we're learning from today. And I love that. Because I think sometimes we have a hard time learning from people who are disadvantaged, disenfranchised, who are marginalized and who are on the edges. And so we're going to sit and we're going to learn from the shepherds today. The text says they were keeping watch where we get our theme of keeping vigil while everyone else was sleeping. They were guarding and watching over sheep. Interestingly, commentators suggest that these sheep would have been destined for spiritual sacrifice according to the law. So all the sacrificial stuff that had to happen in the temple to make right the spiritual things, these were the sheep that were being sacrificed. And the shepherds were guarding those sheep. 
Think about these, quote, incompetence, guarding the very resources that would be used for God to mediate grace and forgiveness to his people. They were guarding the resources that would usher in right relationship between God and humanity. They, the discarded and the despised of society stayed awake to guard the very things that would become the substance of the sacrifice used to spiritually set right what had been broken all year. Do you see the significance? They were guarding the sheep. And then there was an announcement. We have a lot to learn from these shepherds about keeping vigil and what it's important to guard and protect. So, <laughs> a little thought experiment. What do you think they were doing as they were keeping watch, right? We know a little bit about who they were and where they were, but what were they doing while they were keeping watch? I don't know. I can tell you what they weren't doing. There were no iPhones back then, so they weren't scrolling their feeds while they're out there in the fields, right? Just a group of them not scrolling their feeds. Um, I think they were probably talking to one another out there in the fields. Maybe they were talking about family. Maybe they were talking about the most stupid thing one of their sheep had done that day. <laughs> sheep have a pretty bad reputation in that regard. Um, maybe they were talking about a most recent rescue or how they had to like ward off bravely, ward off one of the wolves or the lions or whatever was out there. I wonder if they had conversations about when Messiah would come. Maybe they wondered and discussed if the sacrificial system that kept them both employed and oppressed would ever be over. Would they ever be free from the need to guard the sheep that were destined to be sacrificed for a spirituality they were not welcome in? What kind of hope were they guarding as they kept watch over those sheep? Suddenly, out of nowhere, an angel of the Lord appears and breaks either into the silent stillness or into their conversation. One commentator suggests that the angel didn't hang up in the sky. I don't know how it works out in your mind, but like when this happens, the, the shepherds are on the field, it's dark, it's on a hill, and the angels come down and they hang in the sky, in my mind. But one commentator suggests that that actually didn't happen, that when the angel appeared, he stood right in their midst, right on ground level. And it's easy for me to consider the significance of the glory of God being right there on the ground with those who are outcast. I think it's like this. When I want to get my kids' attention, and when I want them to know that what I'm about to say really matters, and I want them to know that they really matter, this is what I do. Hey, Annalise. And I look them in the eyes. I look her in the eyes. And I stoop down. And I think that that's what God was doing when he sent the angel. And the angel maybe was on the ground with them, not hanging up in the sky. Saying, you really matter. And this message that I'm about to give you really matters. But I'll tell you, that's not what they were thinking. They were terrified. I actually love the Charlie Brown version that says, they were sore afraid. 
right? Like, I mean, the Greek is, uh, is megaphobia. You don't have to know a lot of Greek to know what that means, right? Like, <laughs> megaphobia. They were terrified. And that's not an uncommon response for people in the biblical days when an angel came to them. That was some pretty scary stuff. Time again, we read in the scriptures that once an angel appears, the first words are, don't be afraid. Yeah, but let's face it, if angels did today like they did in those days, teleporting from heaven to earth in the midst of a dark night, bringing white-hot God glory into a dark room or onto a dark street, we'd probably be terrified too. So yeah. They were afraid for obvious reasons. But let's remember the context. Remember that there were 400 years of silence from God leading up to that night. Those shepherds' grandparents, grandparents, weren't even alive when God last spoke through the prophets. Consider that they were among the lowest caste in their society, presumably the last to which God would send his messengers. If this spiritual being that was in their midst was anything like the religious ruling leaders, they were probably in for a pretty terrible experience. And in a heartbeat, all the stillness of just a routine night on the fields, watching the sheep, was disrupted and they were terrified by the unfamiliar, the unexpected, and the uncertainty of what was going to happen next. How do you feel when things are unfamiliar, and when they're uncertain, and when they're unexpected? Even when God has shown up, do you sometimes still feel uncertain, perhaps uneasy, maybe terrified? It's in these very circumstances that hope, like a seed planted into the darkness of soil, germinates and brings forth life. So, I mean, I think we all kind of have an idea of what hope is, but it's at least good to ask the question, what, what is hope? Is it a feeling? Is it a set of behaviors? Can it be mustered up? Is it received? What, what is hope? Um, so I did some research, and, and as I was researching, there's actually like a, there's a psychologist who does research on hope. He's like a hope researcher. Well, he's, he's deceased now, but is, he did that, and he has a team that still does that. Um, so what's the, so the first is the psychology of hope. And, and I, you know, I studied psychology in school, and so you're going to get to hear about this. Um, hope is not an emotion. This is what they learned, that hope is not an emotion. It's a way of thinking or a cognitive process, actually. And emotions, they do play a supporting role, but hope is really a thought process made up of what this hope researcher um, and psychologist C.R. Snyder calls a trilogy of goals. Uh, a trilogy of goals, pathways, and agency. So in very simple terms, hope happens when we have the ability to set realistic goals. I know where I want to go. Secondly, 
we're able to figure out how to achieve these goals, including the ability to stay flexible and develop alternative routes. I know how to get there. I'm persistent and I can tolerate disappointment and try again. And thirdly, we believe in ourselves. Hope happens when we believe in ourselves, sort of like the, I can do this. Hope is a combination of setting goals, having the tenacity and perseverance to pursue them, and believing in our own abilities. So I'll tell you a quick story. Um, in track, it's kind of embarrassing, so I'll have my vulnerable moment now. Um, in, I was in high school, and I ran track for one year, and you'll know why it was only for one year in just a second. Um, I, this is gonna be hard for you to believe. I literally lost, lost as in last place, last runner, last place, lost every single, every single race, every single race, last during my high school track year. Last place. Um, so hope comes from the ability to set realistic goals. <laughs> and, you know, we have to find out how to achieve these goals and, and have the tenacity to persevere. It took me a little bit of time to want to run again. But as an adult, I knew I needed to exercise, and running is free. Um, so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to run. And in 2011, I, I made a New Year's resolution, which if you know me, you know, like, that is not my deal. But anyway, I did it. And my resolution was to run three races that year. I thought, I'll run a 5K, I'll run a 10K, and I'll run another 10K. Because um, <laughs> I could never run a half marathon. Um, so, so, uh, not too long into the year, right around March, I find out I'm pregnant. That kind of makes it harder to run, but you know, I have a goal. So my first 5K happened when I was eight months pregnant. I ran it in September and Annalise was born in November. Um, and here was my thinking. I was like, dude, I've got to run this race. I'm not gonna run it after she's born because I'm gonna have too much to do. So I have to run this race, and if I run this race pregnant, then I have no excuse for the rest of my life of why I can't run a race. <laughs> so I ran that race. The next race I ran, 2016, <laughs> five years later. And you know, you have to be realistic about <laughs> your goals, and you have to pursue them. Even if it's not the plan that you had, you've got to be able to you know, to work around the adversity. Um, so in 2016, I ran a 10 mile and I ran a half marathon and I had never run that far in my life. Every like long run, I was like, oh, eight miles? I've never done that before, <laughs> nine miles. Um, so anyway, the psychological understanding of hope um, is helpful. And it's fun to hear stories and think about times when we've been able to overcome and do things that we just really didn't think we could do. But as helpful and practical as, as that understanding of hope is, it lacks a fuller understanding that we have as believers. The biblical understanding of hope is centered in Christ. And we have hope not because of what we've done and what we've overcome, 
but because of what Christ has overcome. His overcoming the power of sin and death through his sacrifice on the cross gives us victory over sin and the hope for deliverance when we feel really stuck in it. It gives us hope for what happens after this life. So when life totally sucks and you're tired of the relentless hardship, hope comes from thinking forward and knowing this is not all there is. I have an eternity to look forward to with the God of eternity who created me and loves me. And this right here is not all there is. Isaiah foretold that the center of our hope would be in learning from Jesus. And uh, Isaiah 42, one through four, it says this, take a good look at my servant. I'm backing him to the hilt. He's the one I chose and I couldn't be more pleased with him. I've bathed him with my spirit, my life. He'll set everything right among the nations. He won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or gaudy parades. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and insignificant, but he'll steadily and firmly set things right. He won't tire out and quit. He won't be stopped until he's finished his work to set things right on earth. Far-flung oceans, far-flung ocean islands wait expectantly for his teaching. That phrase, wait expectantly, means hope. In the NIV, it reads, in his teachings, the islands, that's those of us, those, those who are far off, in his teachings, the islands will put their hope. So we see that biblical hope is centered in the person of Christ. Biblical hope um, kind of opposed to psychological hope where we sort of have to create our own plans and you know find our own way in life biblical hope actually comes because we're co-creators with god in the paths of our left alone to sort out our life plans and take the practical steps um, that that psychological hope says we have to take we don't have to do those alone hope comes from remembering god's faithfulness in the past and it comes from believing what can be for the future, and this is the essence of Advent. More than any other season in the church calendar, Advent teaches us to slow down and to keep watch and to wait and to cultivate hope. But waiting, nobody likes that word. Nobody likes to wait. Nobody likes to wait in lines. Nobody likes to wait on the phone or wait on the metro or wait in traffic but we all do it. In fact, I, as I was thinking about this, you know, that who is that um, philosopher that said, I think, therefore I am? That's somebody's famous. Yep. And, <laughs> um, and I decided that maybe we could change it to like, I wait, therefore I am. It is such a human experience for us to wait, isn't it? We all have to do it. And Advent teaches us to wait well. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, we experience Advent during winter when the days are short and the nights are long. We know what it is to live daily into the ever-increasing darkness as we approach winter solstice. And we know how on the other side of winter solstice, we hold out hope as we experience the cold and the dark for weeks on end while waiting expectantly for the longer days of spring to come. Winter is long and dark, and for this Miami girl, it's cold and uncomfortable, and it's hard to endure while I wait. So how do we keep vigil over 
hope in this dark season. And I'm not just talking about the physical hope, but I'm also talking about the metaphorical uh, darkness of the season. Some of us in the room today are like the shepherds in the fields, waiting out a very long, dark night. You've been waiting for so long for that thing that still eludes you. Maybe God has seemed or has been silent for a really long time. You're waiting for God to speak. Perhaps you feel shunned by society or maybe even your family and friends and you're waiting for belonging. Maybe you're waiting to understand why certain things have happened or are happening right now in your life. You're waiting for clarity and meaning. Maybe your work situation has been difficult and you're waiting for God to show you what's next. Perhaps you're waiting for a lifelong companion and one, one date after another causes you to wonder if marriage will ever be a part of the story of the rest of your life. If we're to stay awake and guard hope amidst these dark places of our lives, what steps do we need to take as we wait? The first one is wait expectantly and prayerfully. And a lot of people have written a lot of pages on what this means, and so I'm going to have a lot of quotes for you. Eugene Peterson has said, waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act, uh, sorry, is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. To wait on the Lord doesn't mean inactivity. It doesn't mean a refusal to seek and search for opportunities like a better job or a romantic relationship or other things. Instead, it's a refusal to move without connecting our lives to God in prayer and reflection first and often. Sometimes waiting on the Lord means staying put and waiting until you get further instruction. But at other times, it requires us to move forward in a way that's grounded in prayer, even when all the answers aren't there and even when we feel uncertain. Now, that we come to God in prayer is important, and how we come to God is equally important. Because there's an incredible temptation to come to God with the deep desires of our hearts and talk to him about the importance of that thing. And that is not in and of itself bad, except that when we come to God for the answer, we basically are using God in a sense. Like the answer is more important than actually being with God in prayer. And I think that it's an incomplete and misguided prayerful waiting. Our goal should first and foremost be to connect with God whether or not we ever get the answer or the thing that we're waiting for. He is foremost and he is the reward. And the work that he's accomplishing in us as we wait is at least as important as the thing that we're waiting for. But that's really difficult, isn't it? We can't always see the work that God is doing in us, and because we don't see it, we tend to think that nothing is happening and that God isn't at work in our lives. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is always working both to make us more like Jesus and to help us more clearly see and understand his deep love for us. Ben Patterson, a chaplain at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, wrote a book called Waiting, Finding Hope When God Seems Silent. In it, he writes, to wait on God and to pray is to wrestle with bewilderment and perplexity. He does it that he might cause us to so encounter him and wrestle with him that we come to know him as we never have before. 
It is his way of making us come to know more deeply his goodness and mercy. And I'll admit, it's, it's very counterintuitive to think that God would be silent and that's, that that somehow would cause us to know more of his goodness and mercy. But as we see in our story today, God isn't silent forever. And the shepherds, after waiting for so long, experienced more deeply than ever the goodness and mercy of God that night. So in addition to waiting expectantly and prayerfully, we keep vigil over hope by waiting in community. We're not meant to walk this road alone, and the faith journey is challenging, and hoping in times of darkness and struggle often requires more than we have to give on our own, and that's where community steps in. Um, even the shepherds were an example of this for us. They weren't, they weren't waiting alone out in the field. It says they were shepherds in the fields. They were in community as they were waiting. And I think that there's a lesson for us to learn in that. Lastly, we keep vigil over hope by waiting in worship. And waiting in worship helps our souls to be grounded in the hope that comes from the truths of the scripture. We listen together weekly here on Sundays, and we learn together throughout the week in small group. And in so doing, we ground ourselves in the hope of the good news of the gospel. Waiting in worship reminds us that despite what we don't see, God is at work in us and in our worlds. Waiting in worship reminds us that Jesus came to dismantle the oppressive system that marginalized the shepherds. Remember that scripture from Isaiah 42. It said he won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and insignificant, but he will steadily and firmly set things right. He won't tire out and quit. He won't be stopped until he's finished his work to set things right on earth. We wait in worship because we become weary of the injustices we see every single day. And we are tempted to believe that Jesus is not bringing forth justice. And we need this space to remind us that Jesus is doing that work, that he's doing it out here, out there and in here. We wait in worship because we, uh, because that's that, oh, sorry, we wait in worship and worshiping reminds us that God sends his message to the least likely people, like the shepherds. And his message of hope is for you when you feel discarded like the shepherds. His message of hope is for you when you feel disappointed his message of hope is for you when you feel disconnected. His message of hope is for you when you feel distant. His message of hope is for you when you feel discouraged. We're keeping vigil this Advent because God's faithful and committed and pursuing and never-ending love has been made manifest in the form has been made manifest. Let me just stop right there. It has been made manifest, and it is a gift to us. But that manifestation has not come in the form of a gift of diamonds or rubies wrapped in tiny boxes with beautiful, perfect little bows. His gift of love has been made manifest 
in a tiny baby, wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to be with us and to manifest his love towards us. And we remember during Advent all of this as we wait in prayer and we keep vigil over hope as we wait in prayer expectantly, as we wait together in community and as we wait together in worship. Let's pray. I marvel at the fact, God, that you you love us enough to send your son Jesus. Now your love is not just sentimental, though I'm grateful that it is. That the darkness of our world was broken by the light of your son. And that we can have hope in you. We're not left alone. So I pray now, God, that as we consider the things that um, were spoken, as we considered your words, help us to hear you, to continue to hear you, and to respond. And we thank you for your love for us. We pray that we would have the hope that comes from you. And we ask these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.